This is the Book Marketing Action Podcast, and I'm Becky Robinson. Since 2012, my team and I have partnered with more than 100 authors to launch more than 130 business books. On this podcast, I'll share the best insights and actionable ideas from our work so that you can implement sustainable activities to reach your goals for your book. Whether you're a seasoned author looking to breathe new life into your book or someone who dreams of writing a book someday, this podcast will help you be more successful in getting results as an author. Hi, everyone. This is Becky Robinson, and welcome to another episode of the Book Marketing Action Podcast. The recording that you're about to listen to is from a conversation I had with my friend, Barb Bruce. Barb is a speaker, an author, and a literary agent. And we recorded this conversation as part of my preparation to write my book, Reach, creating the biggest possible audience for your message, book, or cause. And even though I've featured Barb on the podcast a few times already, I'm always so happy to learn from and with her, and particularly on this topic of creating reach for people who are from marginalized identities. I really appreciated the insights and her honesty in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, please feel free to reach out to me if I can be of any help to you in creating reach for your work. So you're joining me mid-conversation with my friend, Barb Roos. And we've been catching up about her work as an agent and her work as a speaker and her work as an author. And it's been so exciting this spring for me to see Barb uh, going back to some in-person writers events. So just to catch you up, we've been chatting and talking about some of the milestones on the author journey and particularly the one that I have awaiting me in the next few months, which is the submission of the first draft of my manuscript and then getting back edits from the editors. And Barb had some really great ideas and insights for me about that. So Barb, would you mind uh, just giving that advice and inspiration again? Oh, I will. And uh, thank you. I'm so glad we get a chance to talk our conversation as well as uh, everyone who's listening in. Becky and I were talking about just what it's like to spend all of your time getting the words on paper and the excitement of hitting that final period. But I, over the years as an author, there's some wisdom that I've gathered uh, for navigating the editing process, which is having somebody send my work back and saying, these are our observations and we'd like you to handle them. And so let me summarize what I shared with Becky. The first is, In the editing process, this is an invitation to allow our work to grow. Where we start at is not where our projects need to be. Editing is an invitation to make our work better. And number two, in order to say yes to that invitation, we've got to hold our work with open hands. And by that, I know that what we are creating is important to us. But when we wrap our hands around it and we say, it's got to be this way, that's not healthy for our work. And it's also not serving our readers well. So we hold our work by open hands, by listening well to those who are providing us feedback. Number three is that we trust the process. That even if we've got questions, I remember that um, there'd be times when I would look at edits, my last project. I just struggled because I had to sit down and keep rewriting a section and keep rewriting a section. It took 10 rewrites of two pages over five days for me to get there. And I just had to keep sitting in my chair and keep working at it and trust I was going to get there. So trust the process. And then number four, 
don't die on every hill. You can't die on every hill in editing. I know that there are things that are important. And for me, there was a section where I was writing about race and my editor had some questions and wanted to take that section out. And I trust her, but I had to come back and I had to go, Barb, is this a hill for you to die on? And the answer was yes. And so I wrote her a note and I said, these are the things that I care about and what's important to me. And she gave me space to process all that with her. We brainstormed options and I was able to walk into that conversation in a way that honored the project. So know what hill you want to die on, but in editing, you can't die on every hill. How's that, Becky? Well, it's awesome. And we also talked a little bit about the magic number of 10,000 book sales in the first year. And depending on when this episode drops or what our listeners have listened to, I did have this conversation with Todd Satterston in which he shared his insights about the 10,000 number. So I was wondering, Barb, would you mind sharing your insights? Why 10,000 books in the first year is often your goal as an author and some of what you've heard from other authors as it relates to setting that goal for book sales. Well, I'm so glad that you pointed to your interview with Todd. As an author, but really as a literary agent first, I hate having to give that number out. That's a number that I'm often asked as a literary agent. How many books do we need to sell? Because there are big publishers and small publishers. There are small traditional publishers out there who they may be content with three to 4,000 in sales in the first year. Then at the other end, the big time publishers, they don't want to talk to you unless you can pull down 40 to 50,000. So when I say 10,000, that is really in giving an author a milestone that helps them know that they could have some level of confidence that they can continually get book contracts. That 10,000 number is tough. I am eight books into this thing. Some of my books can hit that number much easier than others. But in a very subjective industry, that is an objective number that is a benchmark. And it is something that should not be a discouragement. It should basically be a target that we can work toward, not a hard number that we have to live and die by. Thank you so much, Barb. And I'm just curious as a side note of your books that you've released, which one has sold the best? Do you know? I'd say Joshua Winning the Worry Battle. It came out in April of 2018. But right now, my Surrendered Letting Go and Living Like Jesus study, it's about letting go of control. It's probably on track to pace Joshua much faster. That came out a year ago and came out during the pandemic. It's one of the few projects that was made for the pandemic, which was crazy because I wrote that project at the end of a very painful divorce. So it's kind of nutty seeing how a project written at the toughest time in my life has been able to serve the most number of people quickly. So it's kind of cool. That is amazing. Well, so originally I asked you to speak with me today, Barb, because in writing my book, one of the things I want to be able to do is to talk about the challenge that people from marginalized communities might face in creating traction for their biggest ideas. And so I'm curious, and obviously I can't ask you to speak on behalf of an entire race of people. I can only ask you to speak on behalf of yourself or potentially on behalf of some of the authors that you've served as an agent. But I'm curious to hear your perspective about the difficulties that people from marginalized communities face in creating traction for their books, businesses, messages, or causes. 
So first, I want to applaud you, Becky, for opening up this conversation. This is a difficult conversation because we have all types of emotional, political, social baggage that we all bring to any conversation about race. And when it comes to publishing, it gets even more complicated because in publishing, there are so many people who are fighting to get that traditional publishing contract. And then when you introduce race to it, for somebody in majority culture, and I mentioned this because I was at a conference recently where this came up, where someone said, why are we talking about privilege in publishing? There's so many of us trying to get a contract. Well, recently in Publishers Weekly, I was able to talk about four specific dials. If you imagine like the dial on a radio, but four specific dials for BIPOC and other diverse writers that tend to stay between zero and four. And those areas, they are discoverability, equity, availability, and approachability. And what all of those lean to is that BIPOC and diverse authors do not, by and large, have the access or connections, access or acquaintances that many other people have in publishing. And how we know this is when I show up at writers' conferences, they are overwhelmingly, by and large, Caucasian. Overwhelmingly, by and large. And what that means is, A, that BIPOC and other diverse writers, they do not know about these conferences. They also are unable to take the time off or afford to attend them. And they also are not sure if they will feel welcomed at them. And when I refer to conferences, these are perhaps, in my opinion, the best opportunity for us to meet and make personal connections with editors as well as publishers. So that's kind of the entree into that conversation. Does that make sense, Becky? It sure does. So could you go into depth a bit more about those four factors? Yes. And as I was sharing about these recently, the heart behind what I wanted to do was to create some objective language around a topic that feels really subjective. And so when it comes to the first one, which is discoverability, how do we create avenues for diverse authors to be seen. I'm a Christian speaker and author. So in my world, what I've tried to do and other diverse speakers and authors have tried to do is amongst our diversity counterparts, we say, when there's a speaking event and you look at the slate or the list of people who are speaking, do they all look like you? When you host book clubs, are all of the books that you're reading in a book club, do they all look like you? And is there a way, are there other voices who don't look like you that you can learn something from? I always say, I have learned a lot by reading Amish fiction. As far as I know, there are no Black Amish people, but I have learned a lot by reading Amish fiction about what happens to the Amish and their culture. So discoverability is when we need to turn up that dial in majority culture by saying, hey, let's check out somebody who looks different than us and read their work. The second is equity. This has to do with how diverse authors are paid. There last year, there was a lot of conversation nationally about the huge disparities between the payments of royalties and advances between majority authors and diverse authors. Some of this has to do with publishers not believing that diverse audiences are interested. Part of me think that's cop-out. It's also because publishers 
have not developed the right avenues to market the works to diverse authors, to let them know, to diverse audiences, to let them know that those authors are out there. Third is credibility. A lot of what we choose to read is because we think somebody is credible. And this one I left out when I was first introducing the four. How we establish credibility is when the people surrounding us say, hey, this person is worth reading. So we, as diverse authors, we need the credibility of somebody from majority saying, meet my friend so-and-so, you should read their work. And then finally, visibility. We turn up the dial on visibility by making sure that diverse faces are in the spaces where they can be seen. We rely on publishers to do this. We rely on influencers. I have a dear friend of mine. She has a larger platform. She is a speaker for a national organization. She sent me an email last week and said, Barb, I'd love to have you on my Instagram live. She is a genuine friend of mine. And just as we recommend our friends for jobs, When we are creating visibility, we recommend our diverse friends on our newsletters, on our channels, in our social media feeds. Becky, does all that make sense? Well, it does. And I think one of the things I'm curious about or concerned about is like how we do that in a way that's authentic and while still honoring the value of the person. For me, for example, like to be completely honest, like you're the person I'm most closely connected to who's a person of color. And we've interacted, we've done a few podcast interviews together. But like, how do we avoid, as a person from the majority culture, someone feeling like the only reason why we're asking them is because they're a person of color? Like, How do we approach that in terms of like, if we're looking at a panel of speakers or selecting or hiring employees or any of those things, how do we do that in a way that honors the value that the person is bringing and doesn't cause the person to feel that they're only being invited to create more diversity? So we can take two approaches. This is a great question. We can take two approaches to this. The first is, is that we step into it and then we figure it out. I am okay if somebody emails me and says, Barb, we were looking at our conference next year, or we were looking at a slate of books next year, and we recognize that we need to invite some voices that look different than us. We may not know each other, Barb, but would you check out our website or check out our team? Would you be a part of this? And then we get into it and we build relationship from there. That's one way of doing it. Just stepping right into it and saying, we want to increase voices that don't sound like us. The other way of doing it is going, hey, you know what? I've seen your work and I would love to connect with you, build a relationship with you. I think you've got value to add to our audience, but I want us to connect first. So it doesn't matter what approach people use. The thing is, is to do something. That makes sense. So I'm curious what other barriers you've seen people face. So obviously, Barb, you've been super successful. So I wonder, like, what do you think contributed to you being able to turn up the dial on your credibility, on your discoverability, on your visibility? What was it that unlocked that for you? And what do you see other people struggling to overcome? So those four dials is that it, I was try, again, trying again. I missed to, one. Well, that, yeah, discoverability, equity, credibility, visibility. For me, if I had to say, I feel like I'm probably at a five. The reality is, is if the dial is from zero to ten, I probably could maybe 
compared to other diverse authors, I may be probably at a seven or eight, even though personally, I only feel like a five. Now, what bumped me out of that zero to four that I feel like a lot of diverse authors are, are my sisters in the majority and the connections that I've made. So I ended up on a national speaking tour because somebody recommended me. I had a friend who had influence. She said, we'd love for you to meet our friend Barb. Here's her YouTube clips. Check her out. I ended on a national writing platform because somebody said, here's our friend Barb. We'd love for you to check us out. So I needed the help of my majority sisters. Now, some of you may say, "Woo, that feels a lot like affirmative action, what we used to talk about. But here's the thing. This is no different than somebody recommending their best friend's son for a job or their daughter's sorority sister. It happens all of the time in our country. It's just that now we're just saying, hmm, we're going to be a little bit more intentional about it. There is nothing weird. There is nothing dirty. There is nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to recommend my friend so-and-so, or I'm going to look for someone that I can recommend. There's nothing wrong with that. It's been happening this whole time. We're just asking people to think beyond what's easy. And the reason why we want to think beyond what's easy is because diverse voices add to the flavor and the texture of our lives. We're all missing something from each other when we don't get a chance to learn from each other. I wholeheartedly believe that. So I'm curious, Barb, what if anything people of privilege or people in the majority can do beyond what you've said? I've heard you say, invite those diverse voices to contribute, be proactive, do something. Is there anything else that I might be missing about the way that I could, as a member of the majority, help to elevate and amplify people with marginalized voices? So let me make this real, real practical. The very first thing is, if you're on social media, let's take Instagram. For whatever area that interests you the most, if you're in the business sector, if you're in the self-help sector, if you are in the memoir sector, whatever that genre is, on Instagram, follow 10 diverse voices in that genre. Make it real simple and easy. And make connections with them like their posts, comment on their posts, find out more about them. The second thing that I will say is buy their books. Make a commitment, buy three books and read them for the love so that you can begin to expand your world. I'm reading Chip and Dan Heath's book Upstream right now. And Upstream is about how do we solve problems before they start? In our country today, in publishing today, part of the problem is we don't value diverse voices. And upstream, a way to solve that problem is for us to invest our time. When we invest our time, that's how we increase value. So if we want to get ahead of the situation that we don't value diverse voices and we want to value them, we invest in the content of diverse voices and we read that content. So that's number two, buy three books and read them. And then number three is work with people of diverse voices. Find one person in the next six months, interview them for your podcast, Ask them to do guest blog. 
invite them to just have a Zoom conversation, but work with them. And so notice how I followed an algorithm. First, follow 10 people on your social media in your genre. Next, buy three books and read them. And then find one person that you can connect with and work with them. Real practical. What do you think, Becky? I just love that. Thank you. And I think the part that's hard for me to unwrap and unravel is how to do that in the most sensitive way. And you did speak to that a bit of just being open. Like, hey, Barb, I need to increase my exposure to people with different voices and I want to learn from you. Would you be willing to be on my podcast? I think that's the first valuable thing to say. To just walk into it open-handedly And especially if you're listening, you target someone who you really value. And Becky, that what you just said there, I hope that you transcribe that so that somebody could use that as a template. And when you have a conversation with that person, friends, you can ask a couple of questions. Number one is, tell me what your experience has been. Number two, what's the value that you want to bring to an audience? And number three, how can I be a part of amplifying or supporting your work? And for those of you out there who go, I don't have much of a platform. What do you mean amplify? I'm still trying to get my own self out there. To which I have to say, a rising tide lifts all ships. We have to have an abundance mentality when we approach this. If you are a part of helping someone else, it's going to help you as well. And it may not be dollar for dollar, follower for follower. It will create abundance in your heart and in your content and in your vision for what you do. That is so powerful, Barb. Thank you for investing this time with me today. It has been a pleasure. I love the fact that you want to have this conversation and I hope and pray that it adds value to everyone who's listening today. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks so much for investing some time with us today. If you're looking for additional support on your book marketing journey, join us for the Reach More Readers Workshop, a virtual interactive event designed to give you an overview of digital book marketing strategies and tactics to help you reach the biggest possible audience. Find out more at weavinginfluence.com slash reach workshop.